0: You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres-Rodriguez, personal finance expert, speaker, writer, and business coach. I teach women of color how to build wealth and gain financial independence through side hustles and investing. On this show, we're serving up POC-friendly personal finance knowledge, always with a side of sass. We're talking about how to make dinero, how to keep it, and how to make it grow, if you're ready to become poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice, and I cannot wait for you to listen to today's episode So if you attended Finances in Fuego, the event that I did in collaboration with Wander Onwards, Vanessa from Wander Onwards, um, you'll know that I did a presentation about real estate investing and the fact that I hate real estate investing and I think it's a scam. And that's because I didn't know about this next topic that we're going to talk about with Luke and Daisy of the Make It Rain podcast. I have to tell you, after our conversation, I really feel like I have shifted my perspective on real estate investing and it's because of the way that Luke and Daisy are doing it. Luke Deabro and Daisy Serrano are a multicultural millennial couple, multifamily real estate investors, and creator and hosts of the Make It Rain podcast, a podcast that focuses on multifamily real estate investing for millennials. Luke's educational and professional background is in architecture, engineering, and construction. He has a lot of experiences ranging from project management to business development and to strategic initiatives. He's been involved with projects valued at over $750 million over the last eight years, and he's a limited partner in 445 units across two assets in Texas, totaling $36.8 million, is part of the National Black MBA Association and the African American Real Estate Professionals. His goal in real estate is to create generational wealth, leave a legacy, and provide a better life for his family. Daisy has over 10 years of experience in international relations, education management and counseling, and she has worked with clients in over 25 countries and has thrived supporting large organizational and governmental structures. She is a limited partner in 253 units in Texas, totaling $20.7 million and is a leader in the Women's Real Estate Network as well as ProSpanica, the Association for Hispanic Professionals. Her goal is to help more people, especially millennials, have opportunities to invest in real estate, multifamily investing. She wants to retire her parents in the next five years and empower her community through mentorship and access and be a positive role model for her family. You can follow Luke and Daisy on Instagram and check out the Make It Rain podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Let's get into this conversation with Luke and Daisy. Luke, Daisy, thank you so much for being here. I want to get into who you guys are, because when I found you on Instagram, the level of real estate investing that you guys are doing is something that did not compute in my brain initially, right? When I think of a traditional real estate investor, I think of, um, you know, like rich old white dudes. And so <laughs> you guys do not fit either of those bills. So why don't we start with both of you introducing yourself, Luke, you can start off and then a Daisy, you can introduce yourself as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so um my name is Luke, I'm 31. Um I live here in LA, born and raised in Southern California. Um my educational background is within engineering, uh did that for undergrad and grad school and currently um almost finished with my MBA right now. And you know, I ended up getting involved in real estate. It, you know, it's a long it's kind of a long journey, but ended up really starting when I was a kid just seeing the what my parents were involved with, and then as I finished school, um, I ended up getting more involved and in learning more knowledge. And then a couple of years ago, got even more involved. And then two months ago, got even more involved. So it's just kind of uh, it's just kind of been this gradual journey that's happened over time um, for me. And and uh, yeah, I've been able to to go on this journey together with Daisy the the past few years um, since we're together. You know, obviously we're a couple and um, it's been good working with her on, on, uh, on everything too.
2: Yeah. And I definitely echo that. Thank you so much, uh, Janice for having us and, you know, for the work that you're doing. I know we talked about this off, you know, off audio, but just wanted to reiterate that I think our, our, we have such shared purpose and and uh, alignment in our in our mission, and so we're excited to be here and share a little bit about our story. Uh, but for me, myself, I born and raised also in Southern California, Victorville. Uh, now, Luke and I live live in LA, and uh, have been working in the international education space in the past ten years. So, working with international students, international clients, universities, partners, governments, uh, you know, from across the world uh, in the international education space and that's what I've been doing for the past about 10 a little bit over 10 years and I would say in the last probably five years I started learning more about real estate from Luke he was really interested from you know a younger age about it and so he started sharing with me about real estate and you know what what his interests were and I was not interested (laughs) at all I you know fully supported him and thought that was great. That was something that he was really uh, adamant and passionate about. And it just wasn't for me, but I, you know, would go and support him and would go to different meetups with him and, you know, started sort of uh, soaking in some of the information. And as you mentioned, we don't look like most people um, that are in real estate, right? Particularly, within uh, the investment, uh, multifamily investment, which is mm-hmm. our focus. And so when I started going to some of these meetups with Luke, I- I'm Latina. Uh, my parents are from Sinaloa, um, from Mexico, born and raised there and, and migrated here. So my siblings and I are all first generation in the US, first to go to college. Uh, You know, a lot of firsts in our family, for sure. And so we don't look like a lot of people that I would see in the meetings. And I didn't resonate with a lot of people in the real estate space when I would go to meetings. Uh, And so that was sort of a a turnoff for me, where I saw it as something that Luke was pursuing, and I was really supportive of him. But what changed for me was uh, here in LA, I ended up attending a a meetup called Women's Real Estate Network. This group uh, ran for short. And I remember walking up to the first meeting and it was in a home that had been remodeled every month. They have different themes. And the first time I walked up. Uh, they had reggaeton playing, and I said, "What? What's going on here?"
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a little different, different than what you find.
2: <laughs> yeah, very different from the button dub, you know. Predominantly white male um, meetups that we had gone to, you know the the sort of the clientele that we saw there, and so I thought, oh, this is interesting. Uh, and yeah, I, I you know ended up going there. It was woman based, so you know a bunch of badass women that are doing different things in real estate. And they had wine, they had appetizers, they had music going. It was just such a different feeling for me. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I found my home, and that's where I realized, oh, investing in real estate is something that I want to pursue and I'm interested in. It's just I hadn't found my tribe. And once I wow. found my tribe, that's what changed
0: everything for me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I would definitely be intrigued if I walked up to a real estate investment meetup and they're playing reggaeton. Like, that's <laughs> how you hook me. <laughs> for sure. All right. So I want to get into how your relationships with money were formed growing up because we all have a money story. So um, how about you, Luke? Why don't you start off telling us what your relationship was like with money growing up and what you learned about money from your parents?
1: Yeah. So I'd say overall, it was a pretty healthy relationship. Um, my parents, they had different skill sets. So my dad was very, is, was and still very is entrepreneurial minded. I mean, very, very much going out, trying to provide for his family. Seeing what's new, what's going on, what can I end up doing to to end up having some upward mobility? So, um, for, for some background on me, I'm half black and half white. My dad's from Trinidad and he came here when he was 21, and my mom was born in LA, um, and uh, her parents were uh, were Jewish and Spanish, and um, and so my dad, you know, he was very much had that immigrant mentality of like I'm coming here to America and I'm going to make it. And so that ended up informing a lot of, of what he thought about money, what his relationship was, was with money, and then how I ended up um, getting that by osmosis as well. So he was more on the revenue income side. And my mom, on the other hand, she was much more the expenses side, trying to control costs, making sure that you know, you're meeting your budget, so to speak, and not, and not overspending. And so they, they their skills kind of complemented in that way. And so that's a lot of what I saw um, growing up. And, uh, I ended up tending more towards my dad's side as opposed to my mom's side, just because of, I think, partly personality traits. Um, just how I am inherently, but you know, at a pretty early age, uh, my dad ended up incentivizing me and my brother. I have a, I have one brother who's two years older and, uh, uh, he ended up incentivizing us with money to get good grades. He he was very Ooh. very big on education, and I was like I was like in first grade, and he's like, "Hey, if you get if you get an A, you get five dollars." And like when you're five <laughs> years old, and you're getting money for you know for going and getting great good grades, that that ended up uh, that ended up making a difference. So it's like I kind of got those lessons pretty. Pretty early on, or it's like, okay, you guys do X, Y, and Z, then you get this money, or you end up getting this video game, or those sorts of things. Um, a lot of it was, a lot of it was trying to incentivize certain behavior, you know, which which ended up informing a lot of the way I ended up um, looking at things as an adult and the relationship with money. Um, but. I would say, I guess, I guess I became interested in personal finance when I was in elementary school um, and my outlook ended up evolving as I got older and older. Um, But after college, um, I ended up, you know, making certain decisions and ended up trying to trying to move from more from being an employee um, mindset. to more of a entrepreneurial mindset and a business owner mindset. Um, One quick story. Is that my brother? He, you know, we always were doing something growing up. Like I was selling stuff on eBay when I was in high school because I just had books and like old clothes. And I was all like, okay, well, I have this stuff I can sell on eBay. My brother would was growing crops in our backyard. I think he was like, I think he was like <laughs> 10 or 12. And oh my he, gosh. And he was—he he started growing corn. He was growing like pumpkins. He was growing like peaches. He was growing a bunch of different types of produce. And of course, my dad would like take us out, and he would, you know, get my—he would end up uh, helping my brother sell it to, you know, like for the doctors or the bank or or the post office or wherever. And <laughs> I remember, he—I think he had like thirty-five or forty dollars, and a lot of it was singles. And, uh, and like an early memory I had was he, he, he took all the money and he was jumping up and down on his bed and like throwing it up. And he's like, I'm rich, I'm rich. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I was jumping up and down with him cause I'm the younger brother. Right. and uh, right. so I want to follow him along and I'm like, we're rich, we're rich. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's kind of, you know, a long answer to a short question around, uh, around money and that relationship that I had as, as I was growing up.
0: That's hilarious, and I feel like that directly ties into the name of your podcast, making it Ra- make it rain. <laughs> because I mean, you were yeah. making it rain before you even knew what that meant. Probably.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> All right, Daisy. How about you?
2: Yeah, I, I love hearing that story. I've heard it so many times, and I still love hearing it. Um, for for me, we, we Luke and I have overlaps in our story for sure, and and you know some 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 things that are a little bit different. Um, something that I think was. Uh, unique to us both is that, you know, both coming from immigrant parents, that immigrant mentality of, you know, work hard, save your money. Um, something that was really big for my parents and my household was uh, saving your money and not getting into debt. So I remember from a very young age, my, my uh, family and I, we would always go to Mexico to visit our family every year. And so we grew up with a very clear understanding of, uh, you know, how much we had in the U S versus what our cousins and our family had in Mexico. So I think having that very um, drastic difference of, you know, seeing that we weren't rich by any means, you know, we weren't overflowing with money, but, uh, you know, we had more than a lot of people did in Mexico and having that, uh, I think, um, that gratefulness, right? And that perspective of what we had versus what others had was really big for one. Uh, and then for two, uh, saving and not getting into debt was something really, really big in my, in my family. So uh, my parents bought a home when I was in fourth grade. And uh, at the time, I mean, they bought a home in Victorville for $47,000 just to put it into perspective. So, you know, drastically different compared to where home prices are now. But uh, I remember that every month they would—they were very adamant about uh, sending more money than the minimum to pay off the mm. mortgage earlier. So from a very young age, whenever my parents got taxes, whenever you know they—they they made more. My dad worked for the most part when I was younger. My mom started working when I was a little bit older, but it was a you know one-parent household income, and they uh, prioritized sending more money for the mortgage for the note versus, you know, going out or, you know, traveling or anything else. That was like the number one priority. And so my parents finished paying off their home in less than 20 years, which is almost unheard of, which I'm really, really proud of them for. Uh, so they made, you know, really good decisions and not getting into credit card debt was really big. My my dad, particularly more so for my dad, he was really adamant about, you know, you only use the credit card, si lo puedes pagar. And if not, mm-hmm. then you don't buy it this month Then you wait, or you just don't buy it. Right. And so yeah. my dad growing up we always thought he was really cool right because we always thought like oh dad we just want you know x y and z and no he was like very very strict and now the ironic part is that i'm the guy in the family <laughs> so things have definitely come around um But yeah, that was something really big and something that I was talking to a friend recently about and we realized together is that something that I saw a lot growing up was the concept of a kundina, right, which is when people come together and they pull their money together in a community Mm. and every month, somebody gets the big amount, right? Let's say for example, to make it easy, everybody puts in $10 and there's 10 people and everybody pulls a number, right? For anybody that knows a Kundina, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, But you know, if you get number one, then that first month you get the full $100 and then you keep paying every other month until everybody else on the chain gets the $100, right? Mm -hmm. And something that I realized recently is when I was talking to a friend about this is that a Kundina is exactly what Luke and I are doing in multifamily, but on a bigger scale. And I got so excited when I realized that because all we're doing right now and what we've been able to gain access to is this idea that we as investors pool our money together with other investors and together we can buy something significantly bigger than we would have been able to otherwise. Mm. And so I think just kind of looping that around to how I grew up with the money lessons, right. Of not overspending, of being a Koda, of, you know, saving money and Mm -hmm. being able to pull that together in the community is, is just, you know, what what I was born into and now being able to do that on a bigger scale and give more people the opportunity I think I just I feel really grateful to to be able to now create more access for more people to do that as well
0: That is awesome and I it sounds like both of your parents set you guys up for success with what they taught you with the mindset that they they shared themselves and then they ended up kind of passing that on to you so kudos to both of your parents because you know I think um I encounter so many different people on this platform, and a lot of them have stories that you know their parents taught them what not to do. So I'm glad that for you guys, it's not that case. All right. So I want to talk through your real estate investing journey. So Luke, why don't we start off with you? How did that start for you?
1: Um, I guess it really started when I was five. So I grew up in Riverside, California, um, and my parents bought a home uh, before I was born and uh when i was five we ended up moving to another house and they decided to keep their same house that they had um the house that they ended up buying actually it was foreclosed on and uh like it had it was a foreclosure so it was at a significant discount so um that even shows where my dad's head was at um trying to trying to end up getting a getting a bargain if you can mm-hmm. um when buying an asset so my parents had two homes and and their first home they ended up renting out and I didn't really fully understand it at the time Um, And they didn't explicitly talk about it, but I knew that they were renting it. Um, And then when I was 18, my parents ended up moving again. They bought another home. So they had two homes and those were both being used as rentals. And so I was able to see this and um, I was able to end up seeing how that was a basis for, for my real estate journey. I've only realized this in retrospect, looking back really Um, but moving on from that, you know, I went to school and then after finishing grad school, I read a book that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with called rich dad, poor dad. And a lot of that just resonated very deeply with me and the message of moving from the employee, self-employed side over to the business investor side, it made so much sense to me. And the idea of doing that with real estate made a ton of sense because it's a business model that everybody understands. No matter what type of real estate it is, you you have the asset, it gets rented, the debt gets paid down. Hopefully, there's that cash flow it appreciates. That's, that's like the model that's been used over and over and over and over again to build wealth. And so it made a, it just, like I said, it just made a lot of sense to me. Um, And uh, a year or two after that, um, my parents ended up having some issues on, uh, on both of their homes that they had, uh, that they were renting out. And that was with the management company. They were just doing a a really bad job. They were doing Mm -hmm. a poor job. And so me and my brother, we ended up stepping in and visited the, visited both rentals, tried to see what was going on, like try to get a boots on the ground feel for, okay, what the heck's going on here? Like, why, why is rent not getting paid? What's, what's going on? Um, the uh, one of the houses, they didn't even know, we went there with the property manager and the property manager didn't even know that it was being sublet. Um, they didn't know about the condition of the home. Um, similar story with the other one, there was, there was all sorts of issues um, and damage to the interior, to the FFE, which is a fixtures, furniture and equipment, um, there were additional occupants that weren't on the lease on, on one of them. Like I mentioned, there was, there was, there was just a bunch of issues. And so we ended up firing that property manager. And when I say we, I mean, literally me and my brother, I mean, my parents just weren't, um, they weren't in the right mind frame to, to end up tackling that. And so we took it upon ourselves and we ended up finding a, a better property manager there. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of more more large assets because those are just homes, and those were stu- those are those are homes that my parents had. Um, a few years later, uh, I had the had the opportunity to invest in a in, as a limited partner in two out of state assets with a private equity multifamily investment group. Um, so this is pretty common. It's called a syndication, like Daisy was just talking about recently. Um, and so it was great because it forced me to understand everything that was going on. Um, typically their, the investment criteria, um, is a, a five figure sum at the minimum that you need to invest. And so that, that ended up forcing me to know what I was doing and not just put, you know, $5 in and, Uh and then it leaves and then it doesn't matter, you know? Um, so, so with that, I was able to end up learning a lot, um, and uh, I've learned a lot as a, as a limited partner, passive investor um, in those two deals. And this is a pretty common journey for, for so many of us uh, who invest passively um, and then work to go over to the active side as well and, and to help to build wealth that way. Um, so that's, that's really been my, my journey up to this point. Um, and you know, recently, we, we've started that, the podcast and, and we're looking to help create more access to other people who are in our cohort, in our communities to end up building wealth through real estate because it just, it just makes so much sense um, to me. And if you look at the, the net returns adjusted for risk... Over the past 20 or 30 years, it's very hard to compete with multifamily real estate as an asset class. Um, and so now we're, we're looking to, to end up providing that access, like I said, and, and to be able to, to help more and more people out there.
0: That's awesome. So, Daisy, before we get into your story, I have a couple of questions for you, Luke. So mm-hmm. the first is, what does it mean to be a limited partner?
1: That's a good question. So um, typically, so it it goes with the structure of the entity. So there's um, there's LLCs and there's LPs and there's S corps and C corps. And essentially, when you're a limited partner, you literally own a portion of a company that. Owns the the one real estate asset. So with a limited partner, you don't really have voting rights, um, and and you're not doing um, a, well. You can have voting rights. It's, it depends on how it's set up, but typically you don't really have what are called voting rights, where you can end up making strategic decisions around what the what the um, what the company decides to do with the asset that it owns. Um, If you're a general partner, then it's completely different. You're doing the day-to-day management. You're making sure everything's in order. You're communicating with your limited partners um, as to what's going on and really managing the company as opposed to sitting back and putting money in and letting um, your money grow and getting cash flow.
0: Okay, and so to get started, like somebody that wants to do this, is it just a matter of like meeting somebody that has one of these companies and just saying, "Hey, I'm interested in partnering up with you," or how does that work?
1: Yeah, that that is it a lot to be honest. Um, there's a lot of different resources out there, and so many different syndication groups, and you know, and private equity, uh, boutique real estate groups that are out there. Um, the way that it started for me was that um, I had a. Yeah, I had a uh, a friend who um who was involved with real estate, and he ended up we ended up making a connection to um to the group itself, and then I ended up um, asking about getting offer in memoranda, and wanted to end up seeing what sorts of deals that they ended up having, and so that's how I I ended up getting involved. Um, there are legal Rules around what sort of advertising can be done or not done on these different sorts of um, syndications, and so because of that, the ones that I've been involved with, they're not able to end up go out going out and advertising. I mean, the SEC is going to going to find them. You can end up in jail. Um, it, it can be a pretty big deal if you break the break the rules around it. So it typically has to be someone that that you know on a one to one basis. And the more that you're, that somebody gets involved in the real estate space, whether it's through meetups, whether it's through contacting people who they know who have real, who have invested in real estate, um, that's that's sort of how it it needs to end up going. And it, because they need to show that they that they know the person, for lack of a okay, for lack of a better way of putting it.
0: Got it. That's interesting. So, what like do you understand why that's the case? Like that they're not allowed to advertise. Like, what's the What's the no-no that's associated with that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I guess there's there's different ways to, to look at it. Um, you know, one is that they could be making sure the SEC um, is probably going to say that they're looking to protect investors and they want to make sure that investors aren't being taken advantage of if if something's just out there and being advertised and then they can, they can just want to raise a bunch of money and then take people's money and then not have Mm -hmm. fiduciary responsibility. The other part too, though, is that it's also, there also are those walls that are better up, that are built there that are inherently restricting people from having access to that information as well. Um, So of course it depends on the way you end up looking at it, um, but those are kind of two... You know, I see both sides of it where it's where it's building those walls, but then it's also, you know, protecting people who may not be aware of, of all that's involved with investing into a syndication. Got it. Well, okay.
2: That, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to add really quick here uh, is that what Luke was talking about, you know, there, there are these rules in place to protect investors for sure. And part of it is, you know, for, to protect people that don't know and, you know, that, uh, should be educated up to a certain point to be able to invest, right? You don't want somebody to invest all their money and, you know, there's always a risk involved, right? With any invest investment. Uh, and the other side of it that Luke and I look at and, and the reason that we're so uh, passionate about the work that we're doing now is because within the SEC, there's an exception called uh, regulation D and it's within the 506 B section where you can uh, promote if you have, you know, a, a deal, you know, that you're working on, you can promote it to friends and family. It's called like unofficially the friends and family one, right? Where yeah. you can't promote it, you know, you can't advertise it publicly, but you can, as long as you have a pre existing relationship, uh, then you can promote it to, uh, to people that you know right there has to be a questionnaire that's filled out there has to be you know some some history there but you can create that access to people that you know and this is something that Luke and I are really passionate about because knowing that more people that wouldn't normally have access to it through us would be able to is one of the main reasons why you know we started the podcast and why we're talking about the opportunity and that people can invest because otherwise they if they don't know anybody who's actually doing it then getting in becomes very, very complicated.
0: Right. And I will say for myself, I've never heard of this. I'm pretty sure most people are going to say they had no idea this was actually a thing, but it makes a lot of sense, right? Especially when you tied it back to just the idea of pooling money to buy anything. Um, I think the closest thing that people might know are like real estate investment trusts because mm-hmm. it, the concept is sort of the same and it, it, you know, you it's a lot easier to access those just through any kind of brokerage account. But this is kind of like the more in-person version of that, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know who you're investing with on a like face-to-face basis and you know the properties because you see them or, you know, it's, um it, it, I guess that's the closest thing that if you're looking for a frame of reference so
1: what this looks like. Right, right, definitely. Yeah, yeah. REITs are REITs are close in, in uh in concept to it. There there are some differences, of course, but yeah, they're they're pretty close in concept, like you're saying.
0: Yeah. All right, Daisy. So I'm curious because I know you mentioned before that you were just not about this real estate investing life until about five years ago, but something changed your mind. So like what was that journey like for you?
2: Oh yes, five years. A lot has changed. This is also <laughs> overlapped with when I met Luke. <laughs> okay,
0: um,
2: I I will disclose that. Um, so yeah, five years ago, I think when you know when Luke started talking about some of these different things, I'll I'll rewind a little bit more. Uh, so as I mentioned before, my my family was very anti debt, and when I was getting through college, both undergrad and grad, uh, I got into some credit card debt because I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was not earning enough. You know, I I was. Not, I chose to not look at my credit cards and uh, my finances during that time, <laughs> because it was more stress uh, for me. And so for a long time, you know, I, I wasn't very adamant and responsible about looking at my finances. Uh, and Luke comes along, you know, he talks a lot about uh, financial freedom, about creating wealth, generational wealth, um, you know, f- not just for ourselves, but for our families, for our people around us. And so, you know, I think just that shift in mindset and realizing that coming from a Latino household particularly within my family, nobody talks about money. And it's something that, you know, you just, oh, so-and-so is doing well, or, you know, ganan bien, pero like nobody really knows exactly what that looks like. And so then Luke was very open about talking about money and even more so about planning. And so that was really what shifted for me in big part. Uh, so also, right around that time, we I started working for the first time in a position where I could actually save. That had never happened for me before because mm-hmm. every other job I'd never negotiated, I'd never taken pay into consideration because I was following my quote unquote passion. And that was great. But also, my finances weren't in place. And so, you know, five years ago, once we started having these some of these different conversations, I had to confront my credit card debt, right? And there was a lot of shame and guilt, particularly because of how I was raised, that yeah. I couldn't talk about it before that. And so once I realized how, you know, how much in debt I was, then I had to take action. And for the first time, being able to save and put money away, it, it just felt so different. I not being paycheck to paycheck for the first time in my life um, it was a transition for me. It was something that I needed to like mentally shift, uh, in my head. And so once, you know, Luke and I started, uh, every Sunday, we talk about our week. We talk about our finances. We talk about how we can support each other. And we've been doing this now for years. Uh, and so having to tell somebody out loud how much you owe, And where your finances are makes a really big difference. At least it did for me. And so, just acknowledging the importance of my financing of my finances, I'm sorry, and uh, putting uh, in place a savings plan, uh, and then transitioning from that savings into investing in a multifamily property. So Luke and I invested together in 253 units in Texas, and uh, you know, for me to put money into a property that's 250. Three doors. I I just thought like, who am I to do this, right? I've mm. never seen anybody in my family do this. Um, it it was just I I didn't really talk about it with anybody because I was doing it with Luke and I was feeling so empowered, like myself, you know, feeling that I could do anything. I started fasting and doing all these crazy things <laughs> that I would do, uh, but I didn't talk about it, right? Because you're humble and you don't brag and you don't tell other people about it. That's how I was raised, and so mm. talking about money. Has been such a shift for me just in general. And uh, part of the podcast, I was really scared about talking about some of these things. You know, I was like, what if my family hears it? And what if people think differently of me? And there's just so much, uh, so much shame and um, uh, just so much wrapped around money. And I think just processing that mental aspect for me has been really key in, in shifting. And now, knowing what I know and continuing to learn more. I just, I want more people to know that this is possible. I want more people to know that they can, you know, invest and create passive income to where they don't have to wait until they're old to retire and see, you know, my parents continuing to work until a certain age. And so I I just, I feel like there's so much power now in in what we're doing and in creating more access that that is what drives me you know to keep going and um, yeah and that's that's why we we're doing what we're doing and eventually the goal for us is to transition me from working full-time into uh, you know uh, me Helping to acquire property uh, for us, for our family, and for our investors, and for people that are interested in working with us. Because, you know, we want to live a life that we want, right? Uh, Versus the life that we have to live because of our nine to five.
0: Oh, my gosh. I love that so much. And one of the things that you said that really resonated with me is something that I've personally struggled with. And it sounded like imposter syndrome, right? When you said, mm-hmm. well, who the hell am I to be investing in real estate and you know mm-hmm. having uh, just the opportunity to even do this and talking about it is something that you would think is a point of pride, but it actually ends up being a point of shame or guilt or like, why, why me and why not them? And I think that's a unique struggle that many of us in you know minority communities, we deal with that because we don't have examples to follow. Like nobody around us is doing this. And then it's just like, you feel almost like you're not worthy. So how do you, how did you get past that, that mindset? Because it's hard. And I think a lot of people deal with it.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's been a lot of internal work. Um, it's been a lot of, you know, uh, reading. It's been a lot of meditation. It's been a lot of um, being part of book clubs and having honest conversations with my family, with my friends about the decisions that I've made in the past and why we think certain things and why it's difficult to have certain conversations. I think it's being very, very vulnerable, which is very different from what I was as a child. I mean, to be, you know, completely open and honest with you, I was a bully when I was a child. Um, mm-hmm. I bullied other children and it was a lot of, you know, not knowing how to express myself or how to express my emotion. And so it came out physically. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there's been just a lot of work, a lot of asking for forgiveness, right. For people that I heard uh, a lot of looking inside and understanding when I am reacting physically, why is that happening? and it seems like it's you know completely irrelevant when it comes to real estate, but I wouldn't be where I am and I wouldn't uh, be able to have the conversations that I have and feel that I deserve to be in the room with a lot of other people that don't look like me if I didn't do all of that work behind the
0: scenes mm. yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. So I want to get into some advice, right? Because we're here to educate. We're here to empower. And I think one of the things that millennials tackle more than most is this burden of student loan debt, right? There's so many people that are just saddled with thousands of dollars of student loan debt. And they're just like, I can't even think about real estate investing or nobody's going to prove me to do this. So how can millennials who may have student loan debt leverage real estate for wealth building while dealing with that debt?
1: So, um, you know, one of my mentors, he ended up telling me that the surest way to build wealth is through ownership and equity. And so even with student loan debt, uh, millennials, they're still able to invest And both Daisy and I have, we both have student loan debt. We both invested. Um, and the reason that we did is because like, if you look at what your average cost of debt is on a student loan, let's say it's like 6%, right? And then the average cash on cash or return for a multifamily deal. It can end up being 8%. So the basic math ends up working out where you're getting your, where your, your difference that you're going to have is that 2%. So you're making a gain that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. And
0: Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com dinero.
1: The other part is that that's just... That's just the cash flow side. That's just the rent month over month or quarter over quarter that's coming in. If there's some sort of capital event, like if there's a refinance that occurs or if it's sold or something along those lines, then that can push that annualized return up into the teens, into the 20s um, in terms of percentages. And so now your, your difference that you're talking about is like it could be 20%. Less six percent. So really, you're you have fourteen percent on your money annualized over five, six, seven years, whatever the case may be, however long it's held. So although you know we understand that that um, that millennials do have student loan debt, but there is there are still opportunities to invest um, and. You know, there's only so far that you can end up pushing your expenses down. But if you're able to increase your income, your W Mm two income, and then take that and invest that, then that's where the that's where the snowball effect is able to start occurring and you can and you can really start to to end up building that wealth.
0: Yeah. And I think the thing to remember also is you cannot make up for time, right? You can always Mm -hmm. make more money, but if you don't start now, like you're wasting time that you're never going to get back.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. time time is the only non renewable resource that we know of today. right?
0: Mm. yeah, for sure. All right, so I'm curious if you guys have some real estate investing do's and don'ts. Like, how do you pick a good investing property? And, um, you know, what are some kind of things that you've learned along the way? Yeah, that's
2: such a good question. I I think it. It depends on every person and what they're looking for, right? Multifamily uh, investing is, is just one avenue, one vehicle. Uh, there's so many other vehicles, right, for, for creation of wealth, but we'll definitely speak to multifamily, to apartments, uh, aka, right, since that's what we what we uh, focus on. Uh, what we look for is we invest out of state. So even though we live in California, we invest in landlord-friendly states, uh, meaning you know, states like, for example, the one that we mentioned earlier was Texas. Um, the reason for that is because as a business owner, uh, there's certain regulations that, you know, are better to be able to invest out of state um, versus in California. And it's just so much more expensive to get in in California. So if you look at, you know, purchasing a property in California, same size uh, in California versus in Texas, it's going to be a very different number, right? So we look for out of state landlord friendly states. Uh, we look for, Uh, areas that have the population to support Uh, you know, rent growth and the population to support, uh, you know, people looking for apartments, right? There's areas where there's much more home ownership and there's areas where it has a mix and there's areas where it's a lot of apartments. So, you know, it needs to be an area where the population is a renting population and that also has the employers to be able to have a diverse pool of people. So, for example, something that we don't look for going on the don't side is areas that only have one employer such as the military because what happens if that base leaves then all of the you know all of the work all of the jobs are gone with it um so we also look for areas that have uh, growth right where there are companies moving there there's people moving there um, people want to live there so we only invest in places that we ourselves would want to live as well um Mm -hmm. you know and part of that is is going out to visit In this case, we visited San Antonio and took a a look at the property. We actually secret shopped it, uh, meaning Mm. we went in as tenants as if we were going to rent. And we said, you know, we're interested in moving to Texas. We wanted to see what you have available. And we secret shopped it because we wanted to see before we put our money into this deal, if it was, you know, being managed well. Uh, you know, what did that look like on the ground? We wanted to see the property. We wanted to see the area. We were talking to people on, uh, you know, on the Uber about the city, about what they liked, about things to do. And so all of that just went into, into, you know, finding the right, the right property to invest in. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the equation is the sponsors or the, the syndicators, right? So the general partners, I think it's really important to know who you're investing with. And something that we did prior to deciding to, you know, move forward with the group that we invested in is we met with them in person and we had conversations with them over the phone. Uh, you know, we understood not only the deal, but also the people that we were investing with because people invest in people, right? The mm-hmm. deal is only the vehicle. But the bigger, for us, the bigger, you know, the bigger purpose is who you're investing with and what do those people look like. So um, for us, it's really important that, you know, they know what they're doing, that they have the right uh, property management, that they have the right team in place, but that they're also ethical and good people. We don't want to work with people that aren't good people. And so getting to know the person that you're investing with and the group, I think is really, really important. And now with social media, with, Um, You know, with LinkedIn, with Google, there's so much information that you can get access to. And Mm -hmm. if there's somebody that has done anything that's unethical or illegal, then that's very easy to find online.
1: Got it. One thing I wanted to uh, wanted to add to what Daisy said, too, is is also the financial side of it, too. I think people all the things that Daisy brought up are those things that people oftentimes neglect and they'll just focus on the financials and they're like, Oh, what's the cash flow? Like, what's the cap rate? What's the purchase price? Which is important to know. But then there's that other side of it. Everything that she ended up mentioning. Um, but if you're, you know, you have to know exactly what's going on from a financial perspective. Like, you need to be able to understand the PL. Like, you should definitely understand um, how the debt is structured on the deal and understand when are you getting paid, when are other people getting paid, where are you in in the line, so to speak, um, and like if you don't understand it, then either don't invest or, or work to gain better understanding around it. Because the last thing you want to do is after working for X amount of hours, months, years, saving up this money, this after-tax money potentially, right, that you go and put into something that you don't really understand. I mean that's, that's, that's a very tough pill to swallow where you're trading a ton of time and you end up getting this money and then potentially – can be putting money into something that you don't have certainty about. Um, mm-hmm. so that, that's the other thing that I would end up saying from a do and don't perspective is, is know what, know what the heck you're putting your money into. Yeah. And I'll add that makes one last
2: um, Janice is that don't invest yet, right? Get educated, mm-hmm. learn about what this looks like. When I first learned about this, I had been in education for over 10 years. I had not done math. In 10 years. (laughs) And it was very intimidating. Luke over here has a master's in engineering. So, you know, it was very easy for him to understand the numbers and to understand these graphs and to understand Mm -hmm. the sensitivity analysis. And I was not interested in part because the numbers were too overwhelming for me. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, looking and learning and taking classes and taking programs and investing in myself, right, Um, Mm -hmm. to be now able to talk to other people. But don't be intimidated if it's something that you don't know about. Um, Reach out to us, reach out to other people that are doing it, and we're happy to help connect you with the right resources because not knowing is not an
0: excuse, right? It's a reason to keep Mm -hmm. learning. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you sharing that. And I have a follow up question. So obviously, you know, there's there's 50 states to invest in 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 the United States, and I don't know how many cities. So where do you start from like a practical standpoint when it comes to market research?
1: Where, well, one is you want to look at where population is actually moving to. So mm-hmm. here in California, population has been slightly declining or even flat for the past 10 years or so. So that's, I mean, that's definitely something to end up looking at. Um, also, you want to understand the, the politics slash legislative policy of wherever you're going, whether it's a state or whether it's the county or even down to the city, um, because if you look at, you know, Houston is, is different um, from a legislative and political standpoint than Austin and San Antonio and Dallas in Texas. So understanding understanding that um, and really knowing about the median income of the area, can you end up supporting um, the rents, can the median income for, you know, a one mile, two mile Five mile radius around the property cannot support the rents that are there. So I'd say those few things to end up starting with it. you know from a from a long term like macroeconomic socioeconomic outlook on this. It, you know the trend that I've been seeing is that people are migrating generally to more and more cities. Cities are getting bigger, um, and people are migrating to um, more. Red or or conservative states as opposed Mm -hmm. to the other way around. So it's like people aren't living in rural areas and they're not living as much in in blue states quite as much. So I'd say start with those. The the ones that get brought up a lot are are uh, are Texas, of course, Arizona, uh, Florida, where where you're at, Janice. uh, Georgia's brought up a lot, especially Atlanta, and then some of the some of the Carolinas as well. So those are those are pretty popular places, I would say. I would say right now um, to to end yeah. up looking at.
0: Well, and it makes a lot of sense, right? The cost of living is drastically different. Um, industries are moving to the South because of tax benefits and just more business friendly policies, and uh, people are kind of tired of the cold and the snow, right? right. <laughs> so okay. I think a lot of those factors are tying in. Um, that's one of the reasons why I moved. I was like, I'm tired of paying like $3,500 a month for my mortgage, for a house, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a tiny little house. And I come out here to Florida and see just like the vast potential to own real estate with, and I was lucky enough to keep my Northeast salary when I moved down here. Cause I oh, took no. a job transfer. So like mm-hmm. it definitely opened up the possibility to invest in ways that I could never do in New Jersey for yes. sure.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge changer, and I mean I'm, I'll add to Luke's on the practical side in terms of what things to look for. Um, very concrete, you know, locations. I would say the census, right? It has a lot of information about growth, about mm. change. Um, there's a report called Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, and it's something that every city has to publish um, under U.S. government law. Um, looking at job growth reports, population growth reports, uh, Chamber of Commerce is really big. Uh, you know, within within the jurisdiction of what you're looking for and I would say for me what's made the biggest impact is meetups and organizations because Luke loves reading you know he um, he's he's all about you know school and I like people (laughs) he's doing an MBA right now too so He's all about, you know, education and the numbers. And I love people. And so for me, I learn, you know, by talking to people, by going to meetups, by joining organizations. And so uh, I think yeah. whatever works for you is the best way if, if that's going to, you know, lead you to learning. And, and we do have an episode called Choosing the Right Investment Market uh, with the podcast. And so if you want a little bit more details, and that kind of walks you through some of the details of what we look for as well.
0: Perfect. Okay so what are the benefits for you in your minds uh, about leveraging multifamily real estate versus single family homes
1: Um do you want to t- tackle this daisy or, sh- or do you want me to Uh you can you can go ahead Okay um so I would end up saying a a big part of it is is around risk um if you look at if you have a single family home if there's not a person there renting you have zero income if there is a person renting there you have income right but if you have 50 or 100 unit complex then typically an, an occupancy rate is somewhere in the low to mid 90s and so 90 95% of the units are occupied that's generally where it ends up staying i mean in the depths of the recession um, occupancy rates drop to the mid 80s on the vast majority of multifamily properties so even you, I mean, if you think about the depths of the Great Recession, you're still getting 85 percent of your income that you would have gotten uh, from a rental perspective. I mean, that's huge. Whereas if you had a single family home, if it's if nobody's there, then it, it then it's gone. Um, right. Another part as well. Um, switching from the revenue side over to the uh, over to more of a cost side is that you're able to end up um, having better economies of scale so whether it's replacing a roof or whether it's turning over units you can end up having um, you can end up having management that's there that's taking care of those expenses you can end up having a handyman or maintenance that's taking care of those things to end up fixing as well so that ends up making a pretty big difference and then also um, I just brought a property management having them is is huge i mean if you have a single family residence then typically the either you have to self-manage it which is time and money that you're taking into the equation or it's somewhere seven eight ten percent depending on on what you're looking at whereas a lot of times with multifamily it's much lower it'll be depending on the size it can be three to five maybe six percent of your of your top line revenue of your of your Gross potential rent that you end up bringing in, so that's another thing that ends up making a difference uh, as well. So there's uh, those are some of the main advantages that that I can end up seeing, and then let alone tax advantages. And if you if you purchase it and being able to take depreciation and on the on the asset as well, and then doing cost segregation on the on the asset that that ends up making a huge difference. Of course, you need to consult with a CPA because tax laws are different everywhere, but the depreciation that you're able to, to end up taking has been there for decades upon decades um, in the tax code. So that's, that's one other advantage to multifamily over single family.
0: Awesome. All right. So I'm curious because all of this sounds really, really great, but there has to be some horror stories when it comes to real estate investing. Cause at the end of the day, you're dealing with humans and human beings are messy, right? So are you, uh, can you guys share some setbacks or horror stories that you've faced and how you've managed them along the way?
1: Yeah. So one of them, um, is with my parents, they on their properties that I mentioned earlier, um, they were renting a house. And unfortunately, like I said, the management company, they, they were horrible. They weren't doing a good job at all. And um, ultimately, um, there was a tenant in one of the properties and, it, and they moved out. And my brother and I visited the property just to get a gauge on the current condition. And then to find out that there was trash everywhere. We saw holes in walls. We saw damage to the carpets, to the cabinetry, to the structure, the balcony. I mean, just all over the place. And it was a huge mess. It looked like a bomb had gone off. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was bad. We're like, what the, like, cause this is the house that we also, I'd been in that house from five to eight, from when I was five to when I was 18. So I'm looking at this like, what, I don't know if you can cuss on your podcast, but I'm like, what uh, yes,
0: you can. <laughs>
1: what, what the hell happened here? You know, like what, like what the hell happened? I mean, like it's, it, it was crazy seeing it. Um, So, you know, my, my outlook on life is like there's setbacks and I always look for a reason to learn from the setback and like, what's the lesson in this, right? And so they were threefold. Uh, One was that the asset... Wasn't necessarily in the right area. Um, where I grew up was more of a, of a C area, so to speak. In real estate, we look at A, B, C, D areas, and I would say it was a C area, just given the income um, and the and the crime rates that were there. So it wasn't in the best area. Um, the other thing was that the tenants weren't vetted very well by the property management company. Um, so who knows where their income was, what their backgrounds were, um, especially if they trashed the place like they did. And then, um, the other part of it, like I talked about earlier was just from, a just from the fact that my parents were losing income, um, it was going to be hard to go after those people for, uh, for damages, um. So they and they essentially paid it out of pocket to to end up fixing all that stuff, um, and then on top of it they were losing rental income the entire time. So that was a lesson learned around having the right tenants, being in the right area, making sure that you had the right um, you had the 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 right property as well. Um, so it was it was all of that that I ended up seeing as, you know, it was a horror story and it was a setback, but it was also something to, to end up being learned. Um, and then uh, I have, I have another story, but I'll let, I'll let Daisy jump in here. Cause has uh, sure. yeah, something.
2: <laughs> yeah. Something that uh, I was thinking about when, when Luke was saying that is on also on the property management side, there's an organization that, you know, we're um, we're familiar with that we work with and they were sharing recently of, something very similar on the property management side, but that the property manager was actually stealing money um, from them. And so they, the property manager had stolen $20,000 by the time they realized what was going on. And, you know, the good side is that with multifamily, you do have insurance that covers, you know, it's required to have insurance, you know, to cover something like this, but uh, they, yeah, they, they were, you know, out $20,000 and the property manager uh, is the one that caught it, and they actually caught it. They arrested the property manager, and the insurance paid the twenty thousand, which was then you know given back to the operators, and so that increased you know their their revenue by twenty thousand that they weren't expecting. So it's you know a horror story, but like oh that's nice, yeah, thousand dollars more. Um, <laughs> but I think that just goes back to the importance of knowing who you're working with, right, and making Absolutely. sure that. Who you're working with is an ethical, you know, group or ethical people. I think that goes such a long ways. Uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier, like knowing who you're working with, trusting that person, and. Us also, you know, as operators, trusting the property management and knowing who that is, because as a limited partner, you know, you give your money and you trust that the operator is going to do their job. And there are reports, right, that they're giving you every quarter. And, you know, there is accountability, but you are trusting the person ultimately at the end of the day. And so I think for me, it just really comes back to knowing who you're working with and also understanding what you're investing in. And so then you can see those red flags when they come up.
0: Yeah, that's very practical advice, right? I feel like uh, real estate investing is an exercise in faith in people, Mm because you're hoping that people pay you, you're hoping that people do their jobs, you're hoping that you have the, you know, the sufficient amount of resources to make sure that whoever you're putting in these, these units are gonna just handle their business and um you know, I, I don't think it's for the weak, but I think you can definitely put yourself in a position where you're doing your due diligence and just kind of minimizing those risks as much as possible, right? There's no risk-free way to make money, but yeah. it's all about kind of the upfront work that you do to set yourself up for success.
2: Exactly. And Liz and I always say trust, but verify. Even with each other, mm-hmm. you know, we'll be talking <laughs> about something and he's like, oh, you don't believe me? I'm like, nope, I have to Google it. I hope to, but I'm still going to verify.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So um I have a couple of practical questions for you guys, just for my knowledge and for anybody that's listening. So what does payment look like from a real estate investment perspective in the 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 format that you guys are limited partners or general partners? Like what does that look like from an income perspective? Like how do you get paid?
1: Oh, so um, we either get paid by check or by direct deposit. Um, and okay. the group that we're with, they do a quarterly sum. A lot of, a lot, will do a quarterly sum do it monthly um, because tenants pay monthly, obviously. Uh, but yeah, each quarter we'll end up getting um, our distributions. And that'll be the deals that we're with. Um, they're 8% cash on cash per year. So it's an 8% return. So it's 2% per quarter uh, mm-hmm. the equity that we put into the deal that we get back. Um, and then there's also quarterly reports that go over what the current financial state is of the, of the assets. And then also they'll end up talking about, um, talking about things, other things that are going on on the property, how tenants are doing, what move-ins and move-outs look like, what, what renewals there have been, um, all those sorts of things.
0: Okay. And so if you wanted to divest from a specific property, what does that look like? Do you have to get permission from a board or what, like, what is that?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, It depends on how the the deal is structured. So the property that we invested in was a five to seven year hold. Uh, And so you do see that, you know, typically when somebody's purchasing, especially an apartment complex as big as the one that we invested in, 253 doors, that it is a longer term investment. So if it's something that you're looking to invest in, you know, maybe get your money back in six months, then this is probably not the right opportunity for you. Uh, This is for somebody who's looking more long term. So it really depends on, you know, how, the sponsor decides to structure the deal, but what we've seen is usually between a five to ten year hold, where you know you invest the money, you get quarterly, monthly distributions, depending on you know what the structure is, uh, and then at the end of that period, then they'll either the operator will either refinance or sell the property, and then that's when essentially you get you know the the remainder of the. Uh, of the money, but, uh, it is long-term for, for Mm -hmm. multifamily for the most part. Okay.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. I think real estate in general is a long-term strategy. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's good to know. Okay. So what advice would you give to someone that wants to start building wealth with real estate, but really has no idea where to start?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I would pro- I would end up, you know, saying like books and podcasts and I'm sure Daisy would say like, talk to people. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like different, you know, different strokes for different folks. Of course, it's like what, you know, there's different strategies to, to get to the same place. Um, I don't give advice that, that I, on things that I haven't done before. And so with mm-hmm. me, what I ended up doing was I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I sought out podcasts, like the one that we have where, where your speak, where the, the the people are speaking directly to you about building wealth through real estate um, and then also attending local meetups. You got to put yourself out there and, and really meet people, do a lot of networking to end up gaining knowledge. There's just a lot to learn within the industry. And, um, and you know, we don't know everything. I mean, I'm sure people who have been in the industry 30 and 40 years. They don't know everything. but more so than the knowledge there's a base amount of knowledge that you need but after that it's really people that that you're going to need in order to help you along your journey and it, they're going to be much more valuable than the knowledge that you end up picking up I mean when you're able to leverage those relationships and really invest into those relationships that you have those will end up taking you much further than you'd be able to otherwise like it's that it's that old phrase of if you if you what is it if you want to go I think I'm going to mess up the phrase, but it's like, if you want to go far, <laughs> go with a team, go with people, you know, I don't remember the first mm-hmm. part, but it's like, if you want to, if you want to make it far, then, then do it with the team. And, um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's definitely advice to, to end up giving on, on my end.
2: Hey, I'm the ESL one in the, in the relationship. So I'm usually the one messing those up <laughs> <laughs> least today. Um, yeah, my advice would be to not villainize money. Right. I think, mm. uh, you know, see it as an opportunity and see, you know, what impact and change you can bring to your community with having more access to money and helping others as well have more access. So for me, it was really that mind shift was huge. Uh, And then primarily and secondarily uh, I would say surrounding myself with like-minded people and with these women that were badass that were doing these crazy things and they were in the room and I could see them and touch I didn't touch them (laughs) but if I wanted to I could right because until you see somebody that looks like you that's doing it why would you ever think differently and so for me it was just putting myself in those uncomfortable places going by myself not knowing anybody being very nervous and not having anything that I felt like I could contribute, but just the longer I showed up, the more people I recognized and the more those relationships grew. So um, number three would be follow us on Make It Rain podcast.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to get into that because I think you guys are doing such a service by sharing this information and really breaking down like mental barriers that people have about what a real estate investor looks like. So I want to talk about like what inspired you to share that knowledge? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you could have just gone, become rich, do your thing. Nobody knows who cares, whatever. We figured it out. Nobody else, you know, can benefit from this information. So what inspired you to create this platform to share?
1: What what we ended up seeing was that there just wasn't any anybody out there who was specifically speaking to millennials around multifamily, real estate, investing. I'm 31 Daisy's 32 and we're right in that millennial, we're right in the middle of that millennial cohort. And, Mm -hmm. um, and we just didn't end up seeing it. And there was nobody who was speaking to millennials, let alone like, like Daisy. And you've mentioned over and over again. I mean, there wasn't anybody who really looked like us either. Um, you know, I've, I, I just didn't see it. It just wasn't existing. And so we, we ended up seeing it, that it was incumbent upon us to end up doing something about it. I mean, you have to you know, I'm a very, very firm believer in you have to be the change in the world that you want to see. And you have to, mm. you know, if you want to m- move the world, then you have to move yourself first. And so you have to be a good example and, and be a, a person of ethics and be congruent and do the things that you say that you're going to do and and to move forward in a, in a way that, that's valuable, right? And so- yeah serving as an example to our friends and our family um it's i think that's i think that's everything uh everything for me um and just being able to be a solid example for for everyone and say hey like these things that you see all these other people doing like you can do it too. You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, this isn't, this isn't exclusive. It's not just for these people or for those people. You know, so many people aren't that much smarter than you. Uh, You're probably smarter than they are in certain ways, right? You can end up taking advantage of these different gifts and these strengths that you have. There's no reason why you can't do the things that you set out to do. We're only here for so long. Like, I mean, 40, 50, 60, 80 years. It just depends, right? And so it's right. like, why wouldn't you want to go out there and do all these things that you want to end up doing? And and so, I mean, for me, you know, that's what – obviously, I get fired up about this kind of stuff. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's like – I mean, it's really serving as an example. Um, I think that's – for me, I mean, it's huge. I come from a very, very small family. So there aren't there aren't younger people in my family. But I mean, Daisy and I, we, we have a, an Ihada who's – 14. Um, and so like being able to serve as an example for her, like that's extremely important to me and saying, Hey, like you want to do these things, whether it's, you want to do real estate, you want to do something else, like just go after it. You know, I mean, you can, end up, you can end up doing that. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about like our future children, uh, Lord willing and, um, and the type of example to, to end up setting for them and and like this generational change to, that we can end up making. I mean, my the one last point. You know, my dad came from a third world country. He was born in my dad was born in 1944, right? So right after the end of, right during World War II ending, he came from a third world country, like thatched roof house. I mean, like poor. You know, he had to, he bought his own Chris. He would save up money and buy his own Christmas gift throughout the entire year. Um, wow. and, and when he was a kid, and so for him to come here. Uh, at the age of 21, and then to accomplish what he's been able to end up doing, I feel like I feel like for me it's it's a waste of the work that he has put in. The waste uh, it'd be a waste of the work that my mother's put in for me not to end up going and achieving everything that I can do, given the, all the opportunities that, that have come to me and given, um, the fact that I'm here in America and we still have so many different opportunities that, that are available to us. So, um, Absolutely. that's, yeah, for me, that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, I know very long answer to a short question, but, um, it, yeah. No,
0: but it resonated so much with me because I have the same mindset. It's like we owe it not to just ourselves, but the people before us. You know, mm. like we have been given access to information in ways that no one else has had. Right. We have right. the ability to connect with people all over the world, literally with the click of a mouse. And so now that those barriers have been broken down, like why are we not being proactive about educating ourselves and just opening up our eyes to the possibilities that exist.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, and the last thing I'll add is that all it takes is one person. That's all yes. it takes. And I just constantly remind myself of that, you know, with any family, with any community, family and community are really important for me. Everything comes down to me Back to my family and to my community. And so, you know, all it takes is one person to start a podcast, even though I was really scared and I was really nervous. (laughs) You know, we powered through it and Luke was a huge help. Uh, And, you know, having these difficult conversations, right, is all it takes, one person. And so that's just something that we keep coming back to, right, for... Uh, for Luke and for me, creating more access for our family, for you know my cousins that are now reaching out and saying, "Wow, I had no idea that you could do this," um, mm-hmm. and it brought me to tears. You know, when I started getting those messages because him and I are you know on this journey together, and we want to provide a certain life for our family. But it's not just about us; it's about everybody else that's also part of our tribe. And so, you know, helping to share those conversations and that knowledge with my family, with friends, with people that I wouldn't normally just sit down on the table and say, so tell me about your, you know, your finances. I, right. <laughs> I think it just starts to open a whole nother conversation. And so I think it's those steps little by little that create more access and that change, right, that create change right. for, for, for the long run. So that's, that's who we are. And, you know, we're, we're excited to be here and to keep doing what we're doing and, and to create change for generations to come.
0: That's awesome! I am so happy that you guys did this. Um, and I'm curious. Before we wrap up the interview, I have two more questions. So the first is, what is your money mantra?
1: Make it rain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I should have seen that coming.
2: And we're, we we're doing the you know the the hand uh, movement with along
0: yeah, with make it rain. You can't see it, but <laughs> make it rain. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. You guys are definitely doing that. So um, for anybody that wants to find out more about you and follow your journey, where can we find you?
1: So we're on Instagram, oh, oh, go no. ahead. <laughs> we're on Instagram at Make It Rain Podcast. And then also our website is MakeItRainPodcast.com. And then we're also on every single uh, podcast Um, podcast platform that's out there. Um, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pandora, everywhere. Um, So definitely look us up and that's how you can end up reaching out to us.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I am so grateful for you guys taking the time out to educate us. And I really again just want to reiterate how grateful I am for you guys taking it upon yourselves to create this platform and to open up a dialogue with uh you know, a group of people that I think you guys are obviously targeting like millennials and I would say even millennials of color that have traditionally just not had access to personal finance information and to wealth building tools and to just conversations from people that look and talk like them Mm. about what is actually possible. So I think you're doing a really, really invaluable work to educate and inform. And I just want to encourage you to keep going. I can't wait to see what you guys continue to do and accomplish. And just thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having us, Janice. This has been amazing. I think it's it's great, you know, talking to other people that are also doing such amazing things. And we acknowledge you as well for the work that you're doing for empowering our community and for having these conversations that, you know, I think is, is so, so important. So thank you so much. And we're definitely looking forward to staying connected and supporting you as well.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. I hope you're just as blown away by the type of real estate investing that Luke and Daisy are doing to find out more, right? Start researching real estate in, start researching start researching real estate syndicates and ways that you can get involved because I think a lot of us are just kind of you know, not really exposed to all the different levels of real estate investing and what that can look like. And I find this whole syndicate idea very intriguing, kind of mysterious, and that's like totally up my alley. So I hope that this episode has inspired you to take a second look at real estate investing. If you have thought maybe this just isn't for you. There are so many ways to get involved in investing. There's so many things to learn. And it's important to just continuously educate yourself so that you know all of your options. And I'm so glad that Luke and Daisy are taking the time not to just profit off of their education but they're actually sharing and they're actually inspiring people to do the same so make sure you follow them make sure you subscribe to the make it rain podcast and make sure you support them because their mission is really important and they are part of a big group of people that is really working to educate people of color and millennials about all the different ways that we can start building generational wealth so until next time guys stay curious stay educated stay motivated and stay poderosa